this industry has taken a lot from me, you know, like personally, like life, like from friends to relationships to everything, you know, like it's one of those industries that takes so much from you and gives you back just a little, just enough to keep you in love, you know, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's really, I don't know, it's hard to describe. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. It's not fair to judge Middle Eastern cuisine as one, but the flavours, techniques and combinations from the region are truly spectacular. In Australia, we are blessed with strong ties to many countries in the region as waves of migration have brought new Australians to our shores and with them, the generations of culinary understanding too. That influence is now bearing the most incredible fruit in the restaurant landscape. Paul Farag is the executive chef of Alia and Noor in Sydney. Paul, how are you going? Hi, Anthony. Uh, yeah, pretty good. Yourself? Good. It's good to have you on the show. You're pretty busy at the moment trying to open a, a new restaurant in Alia. What, what's it feel like at the moment trying to get it the wheels in motion? Uh, I kind of describe it as being out in the ocean and treading water and, um, <laughs> you know, trying to, trying to, you know, concentrate on your breathing and just making sure that it all works out. Yeah. It's, uh, it's hard at the moment as, as I'm pretty sure you've heard, like most restaurants currently are going through a, you know, a bit of a shortage. Um, we've just come out of a four month lockdown and people are just gagging to get out and, you know, eat and drink and be merry and sort of, you know, we're sort of coming at full capacity without much support from, you know, our teams as, but we're trying our best uh, at the moment. You just mentioned that you're coming out, you've come out of the lockdown and Nora's open. What's, what's it, what's the energy been like and the response from consumers since reopening that restaurant? Um, it's been great to be honest with you. We, I think our first day reopening was like 120 packs, um, which is pretty much capacity. And, um, yeah, it was, it was good. It was a bit rough, you know, opening up with a relatively new team. Uh, we spent, you know, weeks, uh, I think it was one week actually just concentrating on the, on the menu whilst doing the, the Provador thing that we kicked off halfway through lockdown. Um, yeah, it was, it was tough to say the least. It was a, a long, you know, high hour week. I haven't done hours like that in a long time. But um, it was good. <laughs> it was uh, it, the the reception was really good. People were really happy, um, and it was good to have a dining room of that size back in full swing. You know, Nora's had some pretty incredible chefs over its time, and now you're at the helm, and you're also behind Alia, the new one. Tell tell us about your approach to Middle Eastern cuisine. Um, well, so <clears throat> essentially, it started out as you know, I've, I've never cooked. Middle Eastern food myself, uh, besides, you know, maybe staff meal or, or things like that. And the opportunity, um, Ibi and George contacted me um, with the with the proposition um, just over a year ago now, a year and a bit ago. And, you know, I, my background is Egyptian, like an Egyptian-Australian. And I sort of thought, oh, you know, I've never done it. I never wanted to be. I guess typecast, I guess you could call it, as a, a Middle Eastern boy cooking Middle Eastern foods. You know, I went into French and the, all the classical stuff. 
And, you know, I, I saw it as a good opportunity. Um, and there's a few, you know, people around Australia that are really pioneering the, the push for Middle Eastern food. And I just thought, you know what, let's, um, let's give it a shot. And since then, it's been a bit of a, it's been a bit of a, a dive, like a crash course, I guess you can call it. Like, because I know the flavors, I know, I guess what you remember as a child, what certain things went with what, you know, like the flavor pairings and marriages. But I think when I started into it, I, I was kind of really excited and I just dove head in first and I, I didn't want to do stereotypical food. I, I don't, I think from my previous experiences, the last say five or six years of my life or my career haven't been very stereotypical. <laughs> so when I came on to Noor, I said, oh, let's change it up a little bit. Um, you know, I just didn't want Middle Eastern food to be, you know, that, that typecast. So my approach to it, I guess, to, <laughs> to go around to it is, um, I don't know, I like the flavors, but I want it presented in a different way. Um, and just sort of like ingredients that aren't sort of known to be Middle Eastern. So that's sort of my, my little shtick, I guess you could say. <laughs> you mentioned your Egyptian heritage and growing up in Australia. Take us back to when you were young. What sort of role did food play in your family? Um, okay. Well, any sort of, you know, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern family, food is a, a strong part of, um, you know, your upbringing. So like my parents migrated here, I think in the early eighties, um, they migrated here with my brother. I think he was still a young child and, um, you know, they were both teachers came here to Australia, better life and whatnot. And they sort of brought back, you know, certain dishes that, you know, they grew up with and loved. Uh, my old man was probably the better cook out of the two of them. Um, my mother's probably not going to be happy if she ever does listen to this, <laughs> which I doubt. Um, <laughs> he was always the guy that would, you know, he would make dinner probably, you know, four nights, five nights out of the week. Um, and he was always like the one that would, uh, you know, make the weirder things, I guess. Things that, you know, like I, actually I saw this the other week where Stan Bully had created a dish um, Ibs had created this dish and I was like, wow, that looks very similar to something my old man did. And um, it was like a fava bean sort of terrine. And I was like, oh, wow, it's like this. And he's like, yeah, it's very similar. Obviously, cultures were um, blended when you think about back in history, everyone sort of invaded everyone else and cultures then took on other cultures or food styles. So, yeah, food was just, you know, a lot of strong flavors. Um a lot of, I guess you could say, a lot of dipping, a lot of sharing. There was never a – it was weird going over to like your mate's um, parents, like your mate's house and then had dinner and it would be like, you know, meat and three veg, for example. That was not really a thing that I'd ever seen before. And I was like, I was kind of cool, don't get me wrong. As a young kid, you're like, oh, wow, I don't eat nothing like this. <laughs> Where's the bread? You know, like there's always bread and rice at every meal in a Middle Eastern household. Um, you can't get around that. Um, so yeah, you know, you end up becoming a very fat kid, I think in most of those sort of cultures, because you're not allowed to leave the table until you're completely full. When did you realize that you uh, wanted to start a career as a chef? Um, 
I guess so. I, I left school early. Um, I dropped out uh, in year ten, um, and decided I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to get into cooking. Um, I just wasn't sure. I didn't really know enough about the food scene. Um, what I was sort of, I liked the fact that it was, I guess you can call it back then, like the underbelly of, of it was just went against every grain of society. You know, you went to work when everyone else was off and the fact that, you know, it was kind of like rebellious in a sense. And um, to a young, you know, teenager kid that was, you know, very attractive. Um, I, I guess I did, I think it was, this is where my memory is a bit rough, but I guess in my, in my early sort of uh, high school days, I picked up a, um, like a, you know, pot wash gig at the local tie joint. And, you know, I loved every second of it, you know, like elbows deep in this deep sink, scrubbing out pans and helping the chef, you know, create the, like chop up things throughout the prep time. And it was like really fun. And at the end of the night, he would cook up, um, cook up a meal and then, you know, sneak me, like, you know, give me a beer and stuff. And that was amazing, you know, as a young kid. Not that I encourage underage drinking, but, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> retelling it how it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> so from there, I, I guess I sort of, I, I loved it. Um, I, I found an interest into it. And then I think I picked up another job working at a coffee shop. And then the chef walked out one day and then I put my hand up to jump in and I won't actually name the cafe because it wasn't very good food. It was all like, there was no stovetop. It was um, a conveyor belt pizza oven and a microwave. And you would just basically, you know, cook eggs in a microwave, things like that, you know, it's not the glamorous side of the world, but Hey, it was a, it was an eye opener. Um, I guess then it got time to drop out of school and I was, you know, unsure of how to go about an apprenticeship and I don't know, just really naive about the whole process. And, um, yeah, I, I dropped out. Uh, my brother, uh, at the, at the time and, um, just sort of helping him out at the workshop, you know, doing things. He had a customer that had a restaurant, um, in Randwick. And so I basically said, yeah, no worries. I'll start working with you. Um, yeah, that, and funnily enough, come full circle years later, I live right around the corner from that restaurant, which is no longer no longer a restaurant. It's actually a a supermarket. <laughs> um, but like, it's funny, like you know, it's just funny how you sort of remember these little things and and um, the where life takes you, I guess. But yeah, for some of your apprenticeship, you worked with uh, Michael Moore at the Summit Restaurant. Do you have any stories of that time? <laughs> Um, I saw Michael not long ago, so I don't know how much I could say. <laughs> no, that was that was probably my real forte, uh, my my real foray into the cooking world. I'd say. Um, at the time, I was pretty blessed to go to TAFE, and I had a really close uh, teacher uh, who I still speak to to this day, and he sort of guided me and told me, "Hey, you know, you're." 17 years old, you think you're king shit or whatever, you know, you think you're running the show. And I, I did, you know, like there was girls, like I had a girlfriend. I thought I was king of the world, you know. And he told me, he goes, mate, there's a whole world of cooking out there. And he showed me like food from around the world and all these other restaurants. Like I think it was like, I think he was the person that showed me the French Laundry cookbook. And it sort of changed my view 
And so I thought, oh, I should probably get out of this. Like I'm a bit too comfortable and go into something a bit harder. So I think there was a job going at the summit um, back then. It was called, and now it's called the Obar, but same sort of, uh, same space, the revolving restaurant in Australia Square. And sorry, yeah, uh, basically he, uh, you know, got a job as a, an apprentice chef, jumped onto larder. Back then, you know, you'd have four people on larder. And to me, that was like, it was actually a pretty cool learning experiences. Like I laugh about it now with like some of my guys in the kitchen, you know, like learning how to make chlorophyll paint and painting martini glasses, um, <laughs> just little things like that. You know, um, I remember I think pastry was opposite larder and they used to make this puff pastry twill around a um, cream horn mold. So it was like a little spiral and they'd hang that off the martini glass and all of these little, I guess you'd call them naff now if you saw them, but uh, they were kind of cool to a young, you know, teenager. And um, yeah, it was pretty, it was, it was a wild kitchen. Um, I got to experience many firsts in that kitchen, I guess you could say. <laughs> I'm not sure how much I can say on this podcast. Um, but yeah, it was, honestly, it was, um, it was good fun. And I got to meet some uh, really good people like Andy Bowdy was the pastry chef at the time, you know, who we ended up living together through that relationship whilst working there. Um, yeah, so it was just a, it was a big cover restaurant, you know, you do 300 covers, you know, and it was, you know, big team. It was good, like big days, stuff like that. Um, but it was still, you know, it was part of my sort of growing up, I guess you could say. Um, yeah. And now I think I did a couple of years there and decided to move on. Um, oh, what did I, yeah, I went to, basically I went for a, a job at uh, Balzac with Kempi. And uh, at the time, I think his head chef said they weren't looking for anyone. This is back when, you know, you had to fight to get into a kitchen where now it's the complete opposite. <laughs> They're begging you to come into their kitchen. Um, were, were there any lessons or um, advice that you took from your time from with Michael Moore? Yeah, I'd say it was it was good to learn how a, a big brigade works like that. Um, and it just it, it's back from a time where you know you had big brigades and you there was a sense of discipline, you know, chain of command. Um, you know, there was like a chef de party would run larder, for example, and then he would have a commie and then an apprentice, you know, things like that. There was a bit more of a structure to how um, the kitchen would run. And you don't really see that in Australian kitchens. I think that's because of, you know, labor shortage and costs as well. You've worked with some pretty incredible uh, chefs, Colin Fasnage, Brent Savage, Josh Nyland. What, what's been the real key moments that have um, take you, taken you on the path that you're on as a chef? I guess uh, the four in hand is the one I, I, I fell in love with, I guess. Um, I always loved that pub um, and I loved what it, what it meant to me in my life. Um, you know, I I left the summit to work with uh, FAS, you know, and it was through Warren Turnbull that actually put me onto FAS and that's how I got the job. Um, I 
went in for a, a, a trial one Thursday morning and then he sat down in the pub and he's like, uh, okay, cool. So when do you want to start? I was like, oh, next week will be good. And he's like, no, no, it's all right. Just start tonight. Um, little did I know that he had no one on the garnish section that night. So it was me. <laughs> Didn't really know the menu. I'd just done a trial, you know, like you don't really know what the hell's going on. And um, yeah, and that was trial by fire, I guess. And yeah, and then I got to witness some of Colin's best moments, as I like to call them. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, and I still have a relationship with Colin still to this day. Um, I worked with Colin for, I think, a couple of years back then. And then he, he was a very pivotal, like almost a mentor, I'd say, you know, in, in my career. And still someone that I can call up and ask for advice, you know. What was it about with your time there at Four in Hand that was so important to the building blocks of your career? It was like a pirate ship, to be honest with you. <laughs> that's, that's probably why I fell in love with it. Um, yeah, that, I think many of us still call it the old pirate ship. It was just a group of, you know, men and women that just got it done, you know, just kept pushing on to try and do whatever we could, you know. It was a bit like Faulty Towers in that, first original ring uh like incarnation of the venue um you know it was like a disjointed you know multi-leveled two-core room like it was just a bit all over the shop of how it was put together but it worked and it was great um and it was just you know we were doing something that was i guess very unique to the sydney dining scene at the time um and and to young chefs you know like we were breaking down whole pigs um, like just utilizing, you know, that whole nose to tail philosophy. Um, you know, I guess that's where my love of butchery first started. Um, like just breaking down animals was, just, it's just very therapeutic to me. It might sound like I'm a serial killer or something like that, but yeah, I'm, <laughs> you might get into a different uh, genre on the podcast. So. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it basically it, it really, I found something, um, you know, therapeutic about it. I loved trying to utilize as much as we could. We were, we were very clever with how, you know, food costs run and, and how, you know, to make the business money, you know, like you'd get this amazing Blackmore uh, corned beef, you know, cut out a perfect uh, square out of it for a dish for the restaurant. But then there was trim that would used into a, like a, like all of these things that at, up until that time I hadn't really seen. Um, it was just a, a clever kitchen, you know, the way we utilized, you know, uh, every bit of trim, I guess you could call it, um, you know, like the corned beef would go from the, like basically you cut a square out of the corned beef, this Wagyu corned beef from David Blackmore. And then all that trim would then get used in the pub menu for, for you know, like the utilization of every cut was something that I hadn't seen in a lot of restaurants don't do, I guess. And I guess Fass was very good at that and taught me that. How, how different was it um, moving to a kitchen like Monopole um, compared to your time at, at Four in Hand? It, was a, it took a bit of adjustment. So I guess I worked at uh, Bentley first. So I came on board to Bentley um, and did, you know, a trial and decided I, it wasn't maybe for me, um, but Brent being a very clever chef and chef owner sort of kept me, you know, close to his reach and kept me in the family, I guess. 
And so I ended up doing casual work for Brent for about nine months at Bentley. Um, so, yeah, it was good. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it was an eye-opener. I'd never done that style of food before. And I really got into, you know, using the Textura products and all these hydrochlorides that help you cook in a certain way and can create certain dishes and presentation. Um, so that's something I'd never done before, really. And it was really, it was really good to, to learn and be a part of that family, you know, and I still, you know, still speak to a lot of those boys and it's, it's, you know, we've all sort of spread out. A lot of us have gone on done their own things, but it, I think it was a very, Brent's an integral part of the Sydney dining scene. I guess you can't deny that. He's brought up a lot of younger fellas, younger chefs, um, and taught them a lot of things that you see now in other restaurants. But yeah, then going on to uh, Monopole was Monopole was probably the smallest kitchen I've ever worked in. Um, you know, it was a sixty-seat restaurant with a kitchen. You know, that's I don't know five meters wide, I guess one meter width. You know, small like a courtroom that I've never seen before. <laughs> like I've seen, you know, home fridges <laughs> a bit bigger than that. Um, but we made it work. You know, like. And I, you know, like we could do, you know, two sittings of 60 covers or something. It's like, I think Valentine's Day there, I remember we're doing 120 covers and that's a lot for a tiny little kitchen with, you know, five, four or five guys in a line, you know, busting it out. Um, and it was good. It was good working with the charcoal, um, you know, and that's where I sort of got into the charcuterie world, I guess. I, um really developed a, a passion for charcuterie. Like I think the way I describe it is like whenever I take on a new role, I sort of dive in head first and then I I go down to such a deep rabbit hole that it's like <laughs> it's sometimes uh, detrimental to my own mental sanity. Um, like, yeah, it's I don't like you know when I, I don't sleep very well and I start thinking about weird things and I come into work and I'm like hey we're gonna do this and they look at me like what's wrong with you you obviously haven't slept or you've you know you polished off a bottle of red last night or something like that and I think I did that I, I bought every charcuterie book I could speak of uh, I could think of sorry and and just like researched and researched and researched and basically asked the question why. Do you not see this? Why do you not see that? And then, you know, we were doing goose hams, duck hams, you name it, you know. I remember doing Wagyu short rib, you know, like boneless short rib, chuck tail flap, all the weird cuts or the, the smaller percentage cuts, that lesser known cuts I guess you could call, um, into charcuterie. And then I realized why you don't do that because – Brent would then sit down with me and say, hey, we need to reel it in on the food cost this week, <laughs> you know, because you'd lose, say, 50% of the weight after trimming, curing, drying. You know, that $70 a kilo short rib has now become $150 a kilo. And, you know, you're slicing it and selling it for $18. You're not really making any money. You're probably losing money. So all of those things were uh, a good learning curve, but it opened up my eyes to the, the possibilities of working with certain products and what you could do with those certain products. Um, but yeah, like I still love charcuterie to this day, you know, whether or not I have the time and the space to do it is definitely another thing. But, um, what we did out of that tiny little kitchen with charcuterie, especially, 
um, you know, inoculating molds. I think I experimented once with Koji, trying to inoculate some Koji into the mold. It wasn't very good, and I sort of left it at that. Um, but, you know, like just trying to, you know, produce charcuterie for a restaurant, like doing it for yourself and, and you know, spending the time and making it right is, is easy enough. But having a constant uh, foresight and, and, like, forecasting, I'm going to need, you know, six brazolas each day on Friday and Saturday night. You know, it's going to take me six to 12 weeks to produce that. Okay, I need a forecast. You know, things like that was um, – it got me into the – I guess it led me into my, my following role when I was talking about, you know, like seeing into the future in, in production of something, you know. Well, that future role was with Josh Nyland at the fish butchery, which really opened up so many people's eyes about nose to tail or nose to scale, um, if you like. Tell us about the fish butchery and and what what sort of influence it had on your career. Oh, I guess you know that that business model has changed the way almost every chef in the world works. Um, it definitely changed the way I work. It changed the way we all think. Um, yeah, it, I remember meeting up with Josh um, in the site when it was still the hairdressers joint, and the dry store that is as it's known now was like a, a mural of like just different colors and paints and things like that. Um, I remember going in there and him walking me through and telling me this is where I want the cook area. This is where it's going to be marble topped. And I remember thinking, you know, okay, I don't really see it. I didn't really understand it. And I think we had another chat. And I think how he sold me on the concept was he said to me, I know that you've done whole pigs, you know, you've done charcuterie with Monopole. He's like, whatever you can do to a pig, I reckon you can do to a fish. And me being a little bit um, stubborn or egotistical, whatever you want to call it, I said, yeah, you know what? Challenge accepted. And I saw it as a opportunity to, you know, see what I could do and push my boundaries. Um, and that's what, like, I guess the role was sold to me as like, you know, running a shop that could bend everyone's mind with what we could do. And yeah, I guess we, we achieved that. <laughs> is, is there a, is there a moment or a process that really changed um, your mind and turned the page for you in regards to fish butchery? Listen, I believed in the in the in the product um, very early on. You know, like just talking to Josh and and that whole spiel and everything like that got me on board, um, and I took that and ran with it pretty much on my own. Like like I said to you, like I sit at home and I'll run with an idea till I exhaust the hell out of it. Now, when we first opened that shop, we had no idea what we were doing, to be honest with you. Um, it was pretty much four of us, you know, not really understanding how a retail shop works. Uh, we had front of house people. We just didn't know. You know, we were all chefs. Uh, we, we were used to restaurants, you know, front of house teams and whatever. And after a while, we slowly figured out that, you know, it, it didn't work. I guess so we had to just change up the model and go, okay, get rid of these front of house people um, because what are they there for? They don't really know the product as well as the person they were speaking to. And then it became like a couple of us would be 
you'd come in, you'd speak to sort of the guys running the, the show or the shop and they would know about the product. They could guide you through your, you know, hey, I want to cook this. I want to have this dinner party. And, you know, everyone's used to eating snapper, flathead, the same sort of three fish that everyone eats. And we were like, hey, hold on, there's Alfonsina. We've dry aged it. We've done this. Or, you know, like it became that um, – that was probably the most fun of like saying, hey, I've just done some weird things to this fish. Come and have a look at this. You know, like here, this will really wow your dinner guests, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> Given your inclination to really dive head first into projects and and explore them in such detail, t- tell us about Alia and – the the deep dive that you've done to explore what you'll be doing there. So the the idea for Alia, um, within I think three months of me working with the fellas at Nor, um, the site had been taken on by the guys, and they were like, "Hey, we want to do something here." And it went down this road of you know, kind of like a Middle Eastern seafood restaurant. And, you know, not really something that, again, you know, connotations of Middle Eastern food is not really seafood, but, you know, that whole region is surrounded by coastal waters. Um, And so that was the first idea. And I was like, oh, I don't want it to be a seafood restaurant because you sort of limit um, your clientele. Not everyone eats seafood. And like Middle Eastern food has a strong vegetarian following. You know, like a lot of our dishes are vegetarian or can be vegetarian slash vegan. So I didn't want to like sort of pigeon myself into like that sort of style. And, you know, that's Josh's thing and he's very good at it. And I didn't want to sort of follow suit, if that made sense. Um, going back to how I am, I don't – I like to sort of go against the grain. And, um, yeah, I, saw, I said, okay, let's have, you know – a decent uh, seafood offering. And then it slowly turned into me like digging deep. And there was a very early morning slash night um, that I thought about, uh, you know, I went into like just the research of, you know, cookbooks and oldest cookbooks in the world, whatnot. And I found these, these two cookbooks, right. Um, that's believed. One of them is believed to be the oldest cookbook in the world. All right. They were the first ever cookbook ever, made and it is from the 10th century i believe i'm sorry i'm just looking at it yeah it's the 10th century right and it's what the region you'd call iraq now and it was something that i found online i ordered it paid through the nose for it (laughs) and got it and and that sort of started this thing and then i found a 13th century egyptian cookbook found a um like a like an ottoman empire cookbook and so have gone down this road of this region and it's cooking, right? And have – these books aren't necessarily cookbooks as you would see today in this day and age. Uh, they're more of like a way of life. So how to clean yourself, how to, you know, make sure that your digestion is aided, how to look after yourself like with hydration, like making soaps out of byproducts, um, just a complete way of life book, you know, that whole – sustainability conversation, I guess, um, that is proper sustainable, you know, like this is the real stuff. Um, and it's all, you know, centuries ago and we sort of distance ourselves so much from that. So I've used that and I've looked into ingredients and, and cooking techniques from these books and have decided that that's what I want to do with Alia. Oh yeah. I want it to be 
kind of like we've written a, a you know a blurb, so I won't ruin it too much. But <laughs> it's um, basically someone else has written the blurb, and I've just okay. <laughs> uh, basically, it's um, it's going to be like pretty much that whole region of the Middle East and how you know nomadic these people are, and wherever that sort of Arab culture has travelled. And using that food style, like so you're talking the whole north and the horn of Africa um, going into that Middle Eastern region up around the Mediterranean. Um, so that's that's what I'm trying to do. I don't want it to be, you know, I don't want ingredients that everyone sort of associates um, with the Middle East. But then again, I, you know, it's a, it's a fine balance, I feel, of trying to create something that is not too obscure that everyone freaks out, but the wording and the dishes that are on the menu that I've written so far are a little bit out there. So even speaking to someone like Ibi, who's, you know, was 18 years old when he first migrated to Australia, he looks at me and goes, where the hell did you come up with this? You know, and it's just, he's just like, what are you saying? Are you even speaking Arabic? You know, and things like that. Um, that's that's the path that I'm going down now. I'm just trying to – I really want to be, you know, showcasing what the Middle Eastern cuisine can be, you know. And I think Dan Hong said this years ago, talking about how, you know, everyone assumes like dumplings should be like really cheap, you know. They just have this connotation, oh, yeah, you know, dumplings, whatever, $2, where, you know, Mr. Wong's does – you know, they're quite expensive dumplings, but there's a lot of love and labor and effort put into them. So I think it's the same thing with Middle Eastern food, you know. You can happily go down to your local kebab shop, get a, you know, a snack pack for something for $15 or something like that. And it's delicious, sure, whatever. But we're not trying to do that. We're trying to trying to break people's perception. You know, like certain ingredients like tamarind is common in the Middle East where everyone thinks it's a, a Thai cuisine ingredient you know like taro again asian influences but it's actually north africa so all of these things that i'm trying to you know just change it a little bit COVID has been a bit of a challenge and delayed the project a little bit but you're not too far away from opening the doors what, what are you most looking forward to as you step into the role and and alia takes full flight um so for me i'd like to get into a you know i've designed this kitchen um, from ground up, I've been a part of the build process from the get-go. It'll be good to get into it and see how it works and um, show people what we've been working on so hard lately. You know, like it's this is a project that I think February I had my QCC order already put in. Um, you know, the menu had pretty much been written by, I'd say, June. It's changed a little bit since then and it will probably change again when we do reopen. But it's, you know, it's been a year of doing this whilst running an extremely busy restaurant, nor, you know, <laughs> and dealing with the, the normal issues that you face day to day in the restaurant game. You're renowned for really throwing yourself into uh, the role that you, you take on. What is it that you love about what you do? Oh, it's a... That's a loaded question, that one. <laughs> um, oh, I tell you, there's. I'd, I'd be lying to you if I said to you that every day was happiness. You know, um, this industry is an industry that has taken a lot, taken a lot from me personally and my life. 
Um, but it's not, I don't know. It's a love hate relationship to describe it. You know, when I left Monopole, I had decided I didn't want to cook anymore. You know, I was just, yeah, I, I decided I wanted to take a break. I wasn't ready to keep going. You know, I'd had offers to go be the head chef for so-and-so and I just sort of kept denying them. I wanted to do, I just didn't want to do it. So I thought, oh, the fish world would be great. So jumped into the fish world and it was great, you know, but certain thing, it just, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same sort of, I guess, satisfaction or gratification that you get from, um, I guess, serving people, like actually them eating your food. You know, like I I still have a very good following, I guess, of, of locals in the Paddington Mulara area, you know, and a lot of them have followed me over to Nor. And it was great having this relationship of like explaining to them, hey, guys, you should do this tonight, you know, cook this like this. And it was fun. Even the, the master classes that we used to do, Josh and I, um, you know, they were they were probably the they were the things that I enjoyed the most. Um, and I know that makes me sound like an egomaniac, but you know, I, you sort of crave that every chef does crave that they want to feel like what they're doing is, uh, I guess, you know, you're not just deep frying a schnitzel and putting chips on a plate and sending it, you know, you're, you're, you're doing something for the greater good in a way, you know? And if you don't feel that, then that's why chefs sometimes, you know, they leave the industry or they go do something else, you know? And like I was saying before, like this industry has taken a lot from me, you know, like personally, like light, like from friends to relationships to everything, you know, like it's one of those industries that takes so much from you and gives you back just a little, just enough to keep you in love. You know, (laughs) it's, um, it's, it's really, I don't know. It's hard to describe. It's hard to describe. There's days you wake up and you're like, oh, why do I do this? Why do I do this? And then there's days where you go into work with such energy, such happiness. And I think, you know, that's the the hardest part is trying to find a balance in between those two and, and making it work. Well, Paul, I think you've been incredible in making that work and uh, we're very much looking forward to seeing what you present at Alia with this deep dive that you've done in the Middle East. We've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks very much, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.